Hello, everyone, and welcome to Security Dilemma, a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society. I'm Patrick C. Fox, joined again today by JQAS colleague and guest host AJ Manuzzi. Today, we will be speaking about China, George F. Kennan, and the intelligence community, Dr. Paul Ayer. Dr. Ayer is a decorated former intelligence official who worked on the staff of the President's Daily Brief in the Senior Analytic Service at the CIA before rising to serve as the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia from 2007 to 2015. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, since he left government, he has had fellowships at MIT's Center for International Studies, the Center for the National Interest, and now the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. In 2018, he published Mr. X in the Pacific, his history of George F. Kennan's perspective on Asia and the Korean War, but it is now out in paperback. Our conversation digs deep on Xi Jinping's perspective on China's future, the foreign policy legacy of George F. Kennan, and what really happened with that Chinese balloon. Join us in our conversation with... Dr. Paul Ayer. Dr. Ayer, thank you so much for joining us today. You were a the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia from 2007 to 2015, a period of some pretty significant change in China. Uh, the transition from the leadership of Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping is characterized uh, by some as having some pretty radical change, uh, but by some others, uh, like Susan Shirk, as having relative continuity. How would you describe Xi Jinping's goals and outlook when he started in 2012 compared to how they've changed uh, toward what we see today? Oh, well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you today. Uh, And I like that question because uh, it's one that I debate with lots of folks. Uh, I'm actually of Susan Shirk's uh, way of thinking on the general issue here. Uh, I think that Xi Jinping's goals and his outlook were large, uh, his policy direction were largely inherited from his predecessor. I mean, he certainly made changes, uh, but I see uh, much more continuity than others do. Uh, there's been change, but I think that there's more been uh, substantial continuity uh, because China's, uh, the Beijing's foreign policy objectives under Xi have been around for a long time. Uh, he is trying to maximize China's wealth and power and influence uh, and really to make China great again. Uh, and I, I think that the um, there's been an evolution in that direction, which uh, according, certainly Susan outlines this in her book, uh, which was already underway uh, before Xi Jinping took office. Since the turn of the century, really, China has been has seen both the need and the opportunity uh, to be more assertive uh, and to ex- expand its pursuit of these goals, uh, largely because of a combination of both perceived challenges to Chinese interests uh, and security, uh, which in the Chinese view was largely led by the United States as the challenger, uh, and, and certainly China's greater capabilities, uh, and in fact, China's greater calculation of its relative power and influence, especially since the global financial crisis. Uh, one of the things I like to say, I think, I think that even Deng Xiaoping, who was attributed with the guidance to the Chinese leadership some 30 years ago to hide its capabilities and bide its time, uh, I think even he would have concluded by now that under the new strategic environment, uh, it was time for China to move beyond that guidance and to be more activist. Uh, and I think that over the last decade, under Xi's tenure, that that environment has continued to shift and, and to reinforce those pre-existing trend lines. The environment has shifted both inside China and externally. Uh, Xi, Xi talks a lot, and he's often quoted about talking a lot about uh, what he sees as changes unseen in a century. Uh, that have created a new strategic environment for China. It, 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 my perspective as a historian, this is an objective historical observation. We are seeing changes unseen in the century, uh, given the global and economic uh, trends and political trends and the shifts in, and shifts in the global balance of power. Uh, since the end of the Cold War, since the financial crisis, um, and all kinds of other developments over the, the last several years, uh, uh, so this changing external environment has been accompanied by growing internal challenges within China. I think that uh, uh, this has really led to Xi doubling down on the goals uh, and then pursuing them even more uh, assertively than uh, than under his predecessor. Uh, and in fact, I, I, the one, one of the things that's distinctive about Xi's approach is that this has led to 
uh, his broadening definition of national security. Sheena Chestnut Greitens wrote a really important article in the Foreign Affairs last month making this point that China has this obsession with, that Xi Jinping has this obsession with national security, which is a very broad definition encompassing both internal and external threats, uh, which essentially focus on regime change, uh, on regime security. Uh, so my capsule answer to your question is that um, there has been change, uh, but only part of it in terms of the assertiveness of Chinese behavior, but I think only part of it has been attributable to Xi Jinping's personality and his personal legacy. I think it has been a combination of pre-existing strategic goals uh, and changes in the external environment and internal environment that have, that, have, uh, that have led to a greater concentration of effort on these issues. I really like that approach where, you know, you're, you're considering what Xi Jinping is seeing rather than, you know, what, how, how, how much his parents loved him as a kid or something. Um, but we, we are sort of seeing a, a, a new, a new challenge for Xi Jinping. You know, he's no longer facing this situation where it's like, all right, you got to go for it. It's, it's, it's not so much a matter of opportunity, uh, but urgency as, as there, there are, you know, new demographic challenges and new economic challenges. Xi Jinping recently had the, the 20th Party Congress, where on the topic of Hu Jintao kind of uh, in, in embarrassed his predecessor, but also um, he's now going to have to prepare for the 21st Party Conference, and I believe 2027, uh, which is also cited uh, by, you know, some, uh, I'll say cavalier American intelligence officials as a possible deadline for any action against Taiwan. What do you see as Xi Jinping's approach to his preparation for something like the twentieth, sorry, the twenty-first party conference, when his age and a possibly stagnating economy may call his leadership into question? I'd be surprised if if she was already focused on that. Uh, I mean, it's 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 almost five years away. Well, certainly four years away. Uh, I think it's you know, in one respect, I think it's too soon to tell whether she is. Uh, he's starting to think about whether he wants to stay on beyond that date or whether he's considered a time frame for, for identifying a successor. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of the issues that you just raised, uh, and there's been a lot of commentary just within the last few weeks about China's economic slowdown and the implications that has for Xi's leadership. There's been a lot of, of, uh, of analysis and speculation over the last year and more over how, in a sense, counterproductive China's foreign policy of certainness has been. Uh, and both of these have led to speculation and criticism that she's, uh, well, speculation that she is falling under domestic and internal criticism, certainly within the elite. Uh, I think he certainly recognizes that he is facing profound challenges. I think he's more focused on the near term than he is on the longer term right now. Uh, uh, although the connection is, it seems to me that, you know, the decision he made to stay on beyond a second term uh, certainly reinforces the notion that he views himself as the only person who's capable of navigating China through uh, the, the challenges it faces. Uh, I think he certainly recognizes uh, that there's domestic criticism of what's going on, both domestically and in terms of Chinese foreign policy. I think he recognizes his at least potential vulnerability. Uh, but I, I don't see him worried. Uh, I think that he's going to continue to mobilize his power and his resources to ensure that he has uh, firm control of the agenda and broad support, certainly at least within the leadership for his agenda. Uh, and he certainly has been adept at uh, subverting any potential challengers to his position. I think that's going to be kind of his kind of, you know, back burner approach to preparing for the 21st Party Congress in 2027. I think there's a, a lot that can happen between now and then that's going to determine what uh, his inclinations will be in that time frame, and I think uh, that's what he's focused on uh, it, for the near term. I think. So, since uh, the United States established relations with the People's Republic of China in 1979 and uh, terminated the mutual defense agreement that it had with Taiwan, uh, U.S. policy towards Taiwan uh, has been characterized by a policy of strategic ambiguity. Uh, the United States uh, neither committing to defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion nor ruling out the use of military force um, in, in such a contingency. Uh, how would you assess the viability today and the success of uh, strategic ambiguity in the Taiwan Strait? Uh, well, I think it certainly uh, has been relatively successful. Uh, 
I think it certainly is preferable to the alternative, and we can get into that in a minute. I think you know strategic ambiguity uh, is has inherent flaws, and it poses a lot of challenges. Uh, partly because the strategic environment across the Taiwan Strait and the relationships, uh, the triangular relationship between the U.S. and China and Taiwan has evolved so much. Uh, I mean, the historical and political setting is just dramatically different than it was during those normalization agreements 30 years ago. Uh, and I think one of the kind of challenges confronting strategic ambiguity today uh, is the fact that it, 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 you know, it was originally intended, and it's never been an official policy. Uh, it's just been kind of a char- an informal characterization of policy. It was, it was intended to provide dual deterrence uh, to keep both Beijing and Taiwan guessing. Uh, as to what uh, the United States might do in the event of a use of force across the Taiwan Strait, uh, you know, to deter the Chinese from getting overconfident and, you know, certainly to deter uh, Taiwan from taking too much for granted and pushing the envelope in terms of separatist or independence-minded activities. Uh, I think one of the challenges now uh, is that this is a little bit out of balance. Uh, I think the Chinese see that they're being much more deterred than a lot of folks see Taiwan being deterred. And, you know, we can get into a separate set of questions about how real and how forward-looking separatist sentiment is on Taiwan, uh, or frankly, in Washington, in terms of its support for it. Uh, but I think my bottom line is that strategic ambiguity, despite the challenge, increasing challenges it faces and its inherent flaws, is still highly preferable to strategic clarity. Uh, there's been, as you know, a lot of advocacy for strategic clarity in the in the form or in the sense of making explicit a defense commitment to uh, defend Taiwan against the use of force um, from China. Uh, I don't I don't think that that would enhance deterrence of China because I think contrary to its intention uh, or its espoused objectives, I think a declaration of strategic ambiguity uh, would only um, confirm China's, uh, Beijing's uh, belief uh, that the U.S. supports permanent separation, uh, be a de facto or de jure independence uh, of Taiwan from the mainland. I, th- I think the Chinese would interpret it as, as reestablishment of the mutual defense treaty between the United States and Taiwan, the Republic of China. Uh, they, would, they would view it as a, a fundamental violation of the normalization commitments under the three communiques. Uh, and for that reason, I think it will be directly counterproductive to the goals that its proponents uh, claim to be supporting. You dove into this a little bit in that last answer, um, but you know, how does China view the prospect of invading Taiwan? Right? Is it is it a political goal? Is it something mm-hmm. that it has a certain strategic motivation um, inspiring it, including the chances that the United States would intervene, as you said? You know, and how. How would it interpret strategic clarity? Well, as I said, it would interpret strategic clarity as confirming their suspicions all along that that the United States is committed to preventing unification. Uh, you know, I, I, I you, you, you raised the point about how they would, you know, the their their calculus for uh, like how you phrased it in terms of uh, the prospect of invading Taiwan. The one thing I'd want to emphasize is that the Chinese are not they're not eager to use force against Taiwan. Uh, I think Patrick, you mentioned earlier the you know the the supposed deadline that the Chinese have in 2027 of uh, of using force against Taiwan. Um, that has been widely misinterpreted. China China is preparing to use force, quote unquote, in the same sense that all militaries build their capabilities and engage in contingency planning. Uh, that's what that's what armies do, uh, and I think in a lot of respects. Uh, well, what the Chinese are doing is is not uh, substantially different from the Pentagon saying that China itself is the pacing challenge uh, for the U.S. military. Uh, China doesn't want to attack Taiwan. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't intend to use force. It doesn't want to use force. It has not decided to use force. The 2027 deadline is a time frame for achieving a capability and a confidence level. Uh, and to your point, AG, I, AJ, I, you know, a, an actual decision to use force would be a political decision based on political and diplomatic circumstances. And, and I continue to believe, as I said, uh, one of my little shorthands, China is not looking for an excuse or an opportunity to attack Taiwan. It's looking for a reason not to. Uh, 
Uh, and that reason has to take the form of political and diplomatic reassurances rather than just military deterrence. So you were you were just talking about mixed signals, you know, uh, America seeing contingency plans for the invasion of Taiwan and other sort of preparations that are just sort of the uh, the standard everyday thing that militaries do. They per- they prepare for contingencies. Nonetheless, Xi Jinping has uh, overhauled a lot of elements of the uh, People's Liberation Army throughout his leadership, with some scholars like Dr. Lyle Goldstein tracking PLA training exercises for things that seem very relevant to an invasion of Taiwan, like amphibious landings or other other signaling about uh, their preparation to to execute on this, or, or at least signal that they're, they're prepared for it. How do you interpret uh, a lot of Xi Jinping's um, PLA reforms, and uh, what do you think they mean about how China might act in the near future, even if it's not in the Taiwan Strait? Well, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I addressed some of that in the comments I just made. I, I think that I think the Chinese, uh, I think the, the, the specifics of what they're doing with their military, uh, I think, have two have have two two purposes. Uh, one is, as I as I said, to build. The operational capabilities that they presume that they would need, uh, both in terms of air force and, and naval, uh, well, ground force. It depends on what kind of contingency or what scenario they're 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 pursuing. Uh, we should not be surprised at this. This is what they do, um, which highlights the second element. I, I think it's it's obviously intended for political and diplomatic effect and as a deterrent. Uh, you know, in the same way that the United States is building its military capabilities at using China as its pacing challenge uh, for the purpose of deterring Chinese from considering the use of force. Uh, uh, the Chinese are clearly building their military for the purpose of signaling to Taiwan that they're serious and would use force if they felt they needed to, uh, and certainly signaling to the United States uh, that however capable the United States is militarily, uh, the Chinese are serious about this, that they would use force. Uh, the Chinese like to emphasize the fact that, you know, they would have a geographical advantage uh, in any conflict between the United States and China in the Taiwan Strait because of their proximity, obviously. Uh, so I think it's a combination of, uh, uh, of operational military planning and contingency plans. And there's a whole, you know, a library of those that we could discuss, although probably more effectively with military specialists. Uh, but secondly, to, you know, to reinforce the point I made that I think China's military planning is, is, is as much intended as a deterrent, uh, as, uh, certainly more so than it's intended as a demonstration of, uh, of, a, of an offensive determination to use force. Uh, uh, and it's intended to affect strategic calculation and diplomatic planning really in both Taiwan and Washington. Some of the students in the, in the JQS community talk about, um, the potential for Chinese military action within the Eurasian continent, uh, usually talking about you know the concept of a display of force in central in Central Asia or alternatively Mongolia, given you know the failure for certain Mongolian resources contracted to Chinese businesses to reach markets, stuff like that. Do you think there's a world in which China might you know? use uh, shock and awe force to show that they're capable of using force? Like, how much do you think China cares about proving that the PLA is capable and, uh, compared to the um, political risks of, of, you know, using violence on a defenseless neighbor? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I don't think the Chinese, as I said, well, I said it with regard to Taiwan, but I don't think the Chinese are looking for excuses and opportunities to you to use military force for shock and awe purposes anywhere else in the world. I mean, they, they clearly, uh, you know, even under Hu Jintao, the Chinese kind of started to broaden the mission, new historic missions, they called it, uh, of the Chinese military, of the People's Liberation Army, uh, you know, to extend beyond the region to, you know, global uh, defense of China's interests. Uh, the thing I would emphasize uh you know, two points I would emphasize is that even in that original conception, uh, the Chinese were thinking in terms of internal and primarily, well, in terms of external economic security. Uh, so I think when the when the Chinese started to to broaden the geographic scope of Chinese military missions, uh, they were in defense certainly of you know internal stability and territorial sovereignty issues, uh, which fall within the you know the, the literal mostly in the Western Pacific. Uh, but beyond that, 
I think it was focused on what role the PLA could play in, in defense of China's economic security. And when you saw some of the, the, uh, uh, the deployments, you know, certainly in the, off the East coast of Africa, you know, almost 20 years ago, the Chinese got involved in anti-piracy operations. They'd gotten involved in neo operations. They'd gotten involved in, in protecting and, and, uh, and relocating Chinese personnel who came under threat in other countries of the world. Uh, uh, and again, I think that's a function of, uh, the, the character is the, 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 the perspective the Chinese leadership has of the PLA's role uh, on on non-traditional security issues. Uh, there's been a lot of attention, obviously, in what the Chinese are doing with a military base in Djibouti and where else they might be trying to establish military bases. Uh, just as an aside, I think a lot of that d- debate kind of overlooks the agency of third countries who would have to be interested in hosting a Chinese base. Uh, Beijing can't just decide where it wants to have a base. There has to be a rationale that a local host would would accept for that, uh, and I think that's limited. Uh, uh, the point that one of the points I would emphasize, though, when you talk about Central Asia, the Chinese see their power and influence internationally primarily a derivative of its economic power and influence, not its military power. Uh, in fact, I think they try to make a point of you know de-emphasizing military power because they know that 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 reinforces a conventional threat perception, uh, well, and, and, and conventional actual threats. So I guess my answer to your question is that I, I would be surprised if the Chinese started throwing their military weight around in places like Central Asia, uh, where they don't think they have to do it because their economic weight is sufficient uh, to, to serve their interests and security in those places. Uh, and where they are increasing their military presence. It's not for the purpose of throwing their weight around. Uh, it's, and again, a lot of people question this, but I think it's primarily reflective of a defensive Chinese mindset. We need to have power projection capabilities to defend Chinese interests abroad. And Chinese interests abroad have gotten much more extensive uh, and expansive geographically because of the economic linkages uh, that are in Beijing's view, the primary source of China's international power. Prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there was a, a communique of a no-limits partnership between Russia and China. Uh, and yet, sort of with what we've seen since the invasion, it, it has appeared that there are real limits on that cooperation. Um, so I was just wondering how you think that American policymakers should view the present relationship between Russia and China? Uh, which factors are driving the two parties closer together and, and, and or further apart? Well, I think you just said the, the first thing I think we should, uh, Americans should, should uh, see is what you just mentioned, that there are in fact limits on that relationship. Uh, I mean, you know, there was a, a lot of attention has been given to the rhetoric of that document, uh, you know, just what, two weeks before uh, Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, she was in Moscow and they signed this uh, uh, this communique uh, that outlined all the elements of their partnership. Uh, and, you know, I think it was a rhetorical flourish for them to say it had no limits, because I think both Beijing and 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 uh, Moscow have known for decades that there are limits on the relationship. There is a latent, long-standing historical mistrust between the two. Uh, I mean, there's a long history of this relationship, and it's come a tremendous, you know, a long way since the Cold War. Uh, and I think that we we should view it not not as a Cold War type, uh, you know, coalition. Um, I think we should recognize it as a strategic partnership that is based on mutual opposition and resistance to American preferences for global governance and the U.S. version of the rules-based order, um, which the Chinese and the Russians, I think, both see uh, as aimed at sustaining global U.S. hegemony in the perpetuity and at disregarding, uh, and they see this in specific cases, disregarding what what the Russians and the Chinese see as their legitimate security interests in their respective regions. Uh, we can go into detail on this. And I mean, the Ukraine issue certainly is seen by both Beijing and Moscow as disregard of, 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 uh, of Russian uh, threat perceptions and security interests, frankly, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Uh, and there's a lot of discussion now about whether the Chinese are trying to, whether the West is trying to uh, establish an Asian branch of NATO. Uh, and I mean, that's not a good analogy for several reasons. Um, but the Chinese do perceive uh, that the U.S. is pursuing a comparable strategy within the Western Pacific, which is similarly inattentive to what the Chinese consider to be their uh, legitimate security interests. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's a very realist kind of response to what they perceive as a realist threat. It is not. Uh, I think it's a mistake uh, to see this through primarily ideological terms. Uh, it's not really or just an ideological representative of a struggle between autocracy and democracy, the way that it's often been framed in Washington, uh, because it, it's not ideology that binds these two governments together. It's opposition to what they perceive as the trend line of the U.S.-led world order. Uh, and this, uh, they don't really care how other countries govern themselves uh, as long as their interests and in security are respected. So uh, that's how I think we should be viewing this partnership, not as an ideological, a Cold War type ideological uh, response to the United States. Uh, it's a very cold blooded response, which is based on simply disagreement over how the world should be structured. Oh, and you asked, you know, what, what, what's drawing them together and what's, uh, what's, what's taking them further apart? I mean, I, I think, frankly, U.S. policy uh, and Western policy uh, is driving them closer together uh, because they perceive that the U.S. is trying to uh, score points against China and Russia in a, you know, uh, well, it, well, in an ideological contest as framed by the United States side. Uh, uh, but it's U.S. policy is reinforcing uh, their dual perception that their interests are being constrained. Uh, and I think that's what's uh, one of the uh, sources of, of, of unity between them. Uh, and I already mentioned, I guess, you know, in terms of what's driving them apart, and not so much driving them apart, but what is what, what remain as fault lines uh, is their historical uh, mistrust, uh, a lot of baggage in that relationship. Uh, I think there is a latent contest between the two of them uh, for influence in Central Asia and other parts of the developing world. Uh, and the disagreements, which I think you had mentioned, uh, that have already been exposed in terms of the conduct of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Beijing didn't want this to happen. I think Beijing was caught off guard, uh, and they've been trying to walk a tightrope very unsuccessfully for the last year uh, in terms of trying to exert some influence over Moscow and claiming uh, some support for Ukrainian sovereignty and internal uh internal interests, but uh, it, it's been a it, it's, it's been a, a liability for, for the Chinese. Uh, and that's one of the things that imposes limits on the relationship. On that topic of, of Russia and how it actually relates to how we think about China today, you have an incredible new book out, Mr. X in the Pacific, which talks about the um, you know approach to containment, uh, the, the, the architect of containment, George F. Kennan, uh, who, you know, designed a, a, a big way, a big part of how we thought about great power competition when we had our first one. Um, but, all, but like what his actual views are, were uh, on the region that we're now uh, so focused on today, you know, the Pacific. Um, to just sort of give a very basic overview, why, why should we care about George Kennan's um, perspective on Asia? And, and what, what would be like the, the, the broad strokes about how he thought about Asia? Oh, well, <laughs> give you a summary of the book. Uh, well, Kennan, uh, I mean, the, 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 one of the, I mean, the, the shortest answer to the question is why we should care about it today in Asia is because there are so many proponents uh, of a containment strategy against China within East Asia uh, as a sequel, if you will, to the containment policy we pursued against uh uh, against the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, primarily in, in Europe, but elsewhere in the world. And that's where Kennan uh, becomes relevant. Uh, I mean, he was uh, the most consequential diplomat of the, the American diplomat of the 20th century, and he was the author of this doctrine of containment. Uh, and we can get into chapter and verse of uh, what the components of that were supposed to be. Uh, but his view uh, at the time was that Soviet, well, there's, there's two different threads here. Uh, 
um, I think one of the things that's relevant is the comparison between the Soviet Union as seen uh, during Kennan's day in the policy community as a target for containment uh, and the perception of China today as being a similar target. Uh, uh, I think Kennan would, uh, would not, he, he certainly did not advocate that kind of containment against the Chinese uh, when he was in the policy uh, uh, making uh, positions. Uh, because he didn't see China as anything even remotely comparable to the to the threat that the, the Soviet Union represented. Uh, and we can get into the differences. But I, I think the reason that his approach to East Asia during the Cold War is relevant today uh, is because he was focused uh, in both cases uh, with regard to the Soviet Union and would be today, and even at that time was, with regard to China, in terms of his assessment of how we define our interests uh, in various parts of the world and what strategies we need to pursue them. Uh, and what, what, what characterized or what defined Kennan's approach was a very realist uh, philosophy uh, that defined U.S. interests narrowly, uh, minimized uh, the military component of the strategy. Kennan spent the last half of his life uh, trying to deny that containment was intended as a military strategy. Uh, and I think... Uh, uh, I think he was profoundly influential and brilliant in his judgments uh, during the 40s and 50s and beyond in terms of accurately assessing uh, both the intentions of the adversary with regard to the Soviet Union, uh, but certainly uh, it's relevant today whether we are accurately assessing the intentions of the Chinese government and whether they really qualify for uh, that kind of a strategy. Uh, which is much more militarized or seems to be uh, and is based on broader uh, and maybe questionable premises and assumptions about uh, the nature of the threat. Uh, I know that's kind of a garbled uh, encapsulation there, but there's a lot of threads you're pulling on at the same time. <laughs> uh, going back to the origins of Kennan's grand strategic thought, uh, you know, it, it, it's in some sense derived from his perspective, as you outlined, that there were five distinct strategic power centers in the world. Uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, the rest of Western Europe, uh, Russia, as well as Japan. Uh, and, and how did this shape his assessment of the relative importance of Japan and China, respectively? You know, what, in your view, did he get right and wrong in, in this part of the world long term? I know that's, a, that's a, a, an enticing <laughs> question. Uh, it certainly is. And I talk a lot about that in the book. The uh... Uh, I mean, you know, quite simply, uh, in your list of the five strategic power centers in the world, China, Kennan excluded China. Uh, the only Asian power center in the world that he thought was going to be relevant and strategically consequential over the long term was Japan. Uh, and he was certainly right about Japan, but he completely was wrong about China, which is obviously uh, at least... <laughs> reached, if not surpassed, China in terms of strategic consequence. Uh, so, I mean, that, that was one of my primary criticisms of, of, of Kennan's approach to East Asia, that he, that he determined that China was, uh, was never going to get its act together. It would be strategically inconsequential. And in fact, just as an aside, uh, uh, relevant to the comments I just made about the Soviet connection, uh, one of the reasons that China minimized that, that Kennan minimized the strategic challenge from China was that his focus during the Cold War, especially during the early stages of the Cold War, was exclusively on the threat of Soviet communism. Uh, he recognized that Chinese communism was there, uh, but one one thing he got right was that Chinese communism was not always going to be just a deputy or an adjunct of Soviet communism. Uh, he recognized uh, that China was going to be somewhat independent, even within the Soviet within the Soviet communist bloc. Uh, uh, so he he always he was right in assessing there were always going to be limits limits on Soviet control over China. Uh, but more fundamentally, he essentially said it didn't matter uh, because China was not going to matter. Uh, he thought the Sino-Soviet split. I think he said it in his memoirs was the greatest act of containment. Uh, that could have been achieved uh, because it prevented the Soviets from controlling uh, East Asia uh, through China. Uh, 
and frankly, he, he decided that Chinese control, at least of the mainland of East Asia, was 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 not going to be a problem for us. So that's where he went wrong. Uh, I think he was obviously right. Uh, well, and based on that assessment, he thought that not just China, but the whole of mainland East Asia uh, was strategically expendable and strategically inconsequential in terms of U.S. interests. That's why he focused on uh, on uh, on Japan as the bulwark uh, for anti-Soviet containment in the Western Pacific. Uh, I think he was certainly he was arguably right uh, about the risks of military commitments on the mainland, uh, given what, you know, ensued later in Korea and in Vietnam. Uh, but he was certainly wrong about, you know, the assumption that we could, you know, perpetually ignore, uh, developments on the mainland of East Asia. Uh, and he never really, uh, in his, his, his subsequent approaches to Vietnam and Korea, uh, kind of, highlighted this underlying dilemma that he was never able really to to reconcile his dismissal of the strategic importance of the mainland with this belief that somehow uh developments there might uh require us action uh to to reinforce and bolster us uh prestige and credibility uh so it was a mixed bag i think he was he was mostly wrong uh about how important asia was going to be with the exception of japan uh but even then, he, I, I think he was right about the risks of getting uh, overly committed uh, uh, on the mainland of Asia. As you just kind of alluded to, the Korean War was one of the seminal moments of U.S. foreign policy of the early Cold War. Um, and, you know, you discuss the war in, in your book. And I, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how the Korean War and the concurrent rise of figures like Dean Acheson, uh, and, and Douglas MacArthur uh, really impacted Kennan's influence on uh, U.S. strategy in East Asia. Well, yeah, well, thanks for that question. It's one of the central parts of the book. Uh, I think starting before the Korean War, uh, you mentioned Dean Acheson, who succeeded uh, George Marshall as Secretary of State and thus as Kennan's boss uh, in 19, the beginning of 1949. Uh, Kennan's influence uh, was almost exclusively a product of the delegation of policy formulation that uh, Marshall had given him. Uh, Kennan, uh, Marshall created the policy planning staff at the State Department and chose Kennan to be its inaugural director. Uh, and he basically relied on Kennan to formulate U.S. foreign policy. Uh, uh, and... Kennan was largely unconstrained bureaucratically in exercising that role. Uh, so when he wrote a policy paper and Marshall took it to a Security Council meeting, it largely became U.S. policy. Uh, that all changed when Atchison came in uh, in 1949 because he he, uh, he somewhat limited the autonomy that Kennan had in policy formulation. Uh and made him much less accountable to uh, other elements of the State Department and other elements of the policy community. Uh, he also, uh, another kind of important aside, Kenan, Atchison kind of overrode uh, Kennan's uh, inclination to disregard domestic political considerations in his formulation of foreign policy. Kennan uh, wasn't that concerned. Uh, he thought that foreign policy needed to uh, had little to do with public opinion and domestic U.S. politics. Atchison knew better. Uh, so, I mean, it was a, a full year and a half before the Korean War that Kennan's influence started to diminish because of uh, the, you know, reassignment uh, of his influence uh, that Atchison made within the State Department. Uh, the Korean War, though, I mean, that was kind of the death knell, really, for Kennan's influence, because, and again, we can go into chapter and verse on this, but the Korean War uh, pretty much undermined the entire strategic concept that that uh, uh, that Kennan had formulated in the previous two or three years uh, for U.S. foreign policy in East Asia, which, I, as I said, was based on this uh, dismissal of the importance of uh, of the mainland of East Asia, including China, and our uh, our entanglements there, 
uh, and elsewhere in the mainland, uh, and his focus on a non-militarized um, support uh, for Japan. As I said, he, he emphasized Japan as the bulwark for U.S. security interests in, in the Western Pacific. Uh, but one of his most profoundly influential uh, uh, greatest influences on policy was his redirection of occupation policy in Japan after World War II away from a punitive approach and a demilitarized approach, uh, in, a, in a militarized approach, I should say, uh, toward one that was focused on, on building up, uh, really as a counterpart to the Marshall Plan in Europe, building up the political and economic strength of Japan, of Japan uh, you know, as a, as a protection against uh, against the potential for Soviet influence there. Uh, and all of those elements of China, of Kennan's strategy uh, were overruled by the U.S. response to the Korean War, uh, which in turn uh, locked in a U.S. commitment to the nationalist government in China, uh, then resident on Taiwan, uh, uh, contrary to his advice and his calculation of the strategic importance of those places, uh, it locked in, uh, you know, the expansion of U.S. military presence on Japan, which he had advised against. Uh, it, it certainly uh, guaranteed military intervention in China, in Korea, uh, which he thought was based on an exaggerated assessment of the peninsula's strategic importance. And finally, uh, as an aside, it was the Korean War that began the process of rationalizing uh, U.S. support to the French in Vietnam, uh, which, for the same reasons I outlined earlier, Kennan had uh, had advised against. Uh, so his influence ended when, uh, when basically a militarized version of containment uh, was the U.S. response to the Korean War, uh, which was entirely contrary to his principles and his advice. I, I now want to turn to um, something else that you discuss in the book um, that has some parallels to today, perhaps. Uh, in the book, you note Kennan's discomfort with McCarthyism uh, after his close friend and advisor, John Patton Davies Jr., was investigated numerous times by congressional McCarthyites and was ultimately fired in 1954. Uh, do you see parallels between McCarthyism of Kennan's time and today's bipartisan discourse about uh, China? Uh, unfortunately, I do see uh, parallels and similarities there. Uh, as I outlined in the book, uh, Davies, John Patton Davies, uh, was the China specialist on the policy planning staff. He was the expertise on Asia that Kennan uh, uh, had uh, when he was formulating policy. Uh, and Davies uh, was one of the China hands uh, that had been, as you say, hounded out of office by McCarthyism. Uh, he was criticized for being soft on China. Uh, he was accused of being you know, sympathetic to the ideology uh, of the Chinese Communist Party simply because he was willing to engage with Chinese communists uh, and sought to understand the drivers of their behavior. Uh, um, he understood, as a lot of the China hands did, uh, the reasons why the Chinese Communist Party was winning over the Nationalist Party, uh, which was not a politically popular thing to talk about in the late 1940s and early 1950s in China because there was such strong political support uh, for the Nationalist regime on Taiwan. Uh, you know, we have a very different uh, regime on Taiwan. The Nationalist Party is currently in the opposition. Uh, but U.S. support for Taiwan as uh, something that needs to be protected from China is as strong as it ever was then. Uh, I mean, well, the historical context has radically changed because back then uh, Taiwan was supported as the government of all of China, which is not relevant anymore. Uh, but I think we see some of the same elements today. Uh, I think any kind of strategic empathy with the Chinese perspective uh, or even a presentation of the Chinese perspective uh, the, uh, on international issues or, 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 or of the Chinese interpretation of U.S. policy uh, uh, is viewed as sympathy for, for the Chinese. I mean, I myself have been subject to being accused of using Chinese Communist Party talking points when I simply outline, you know, the Chinese perspective on an issue. Uh, accused of advocacy for the Chinese position. I mean, this... And, and this is, I think I see this emerging around the margins. It's in, it's, it's growing and it's kind of insidious. Uh, 
it, it does echo uh, the kind of uh, politicized ideological uh, critique uh, of China, China specialists uh, that we saw during Gavis's period, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, and and I, I fear sometimes that this has led to self-censorship among uh, China scholars uh, who run the political risk of being seen as soft on China in the way that Kennan, uh, that, that Davies and, and ultimately even Kennan to a certain, certain extent was. Uh, and I, I attribute this, I think, in part to a, a similar sense of vulnerability to China and its strategic ambitions and intentions. Uh, then characterized the period, uh, the McCarthy period. Uh, there's a vulnerability to China uh, uh, that was prevalent. You know, who lost China was part of the debate back in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, and I think that there's echoes of who's losing China now, who, who, who is uh, understating uh, the magnitude and the intensity of the threat from China. Uh, and folks who were accused of understating that threat are subject to some of the same kind of rhetorical criticism that uh, that China specialists were and policy advocates were in the uh, in the early Cold War. On that topic, I'd love to transition uh, to talking a little bit more about uh, the intelligence community, which you know you have a lot of experience in, and the role that it plays and should play. When America last pursued great power competition, the intelligence community played a very controversial role in a lot of violence, culminating in efforts to scale back excess with processes like the Church Committee and a number of other things. Um, but we're ramping back into something like great power competition, with uh, hints at new punitive measures for countries engaging with their rivals, with things like the malign Russian Activities in Africa Act and the language that we're seeing from the Select Committee on China, which you know you, you were just talking about. What do you see as the ideal role that the intelligence community should play in advancing American national interests? Uh, actually, just by coincidence, I mean, uh, there's a document that was just published, I think, two weeks ago, which, uh, which directly addresses that question. Uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence outlined that it, it, it uh, just published its national intelligence strategy. Uh, for 2023. And uh, I think it outlines, I think, five or six primary goals. Uh, and the first one is supporting the U.S. Uh, US interests and U.S. policy in this great power competition. Uh, I mean, as I mentioned before, you know, it's, it's problematic if we characterize that competition as primarily an ideological struggle along the lines of the, uh, the Cold War against the Soviet Union. Uh, but there can be no doubt that there is a profound and unprecedented strategic competition that is now underway between the United States and China. Uh, you know, China. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the strategy highlights Russia as well. Uh, and there's, you know, there, there are some fault lines in terms of the nature of the threat that the Chinese and the Russians pose uh, separately. Uh, but I think the intelligence strategy clarifies, makes, make, makes it um, Evident that you know the primary role uh, of the intelligence community, I think first and foremost, is in accurately identifying and assessing the nature and scope of the threat that we face in this competition, which is you know it covers all all areas. It's a military challenge. It's a economic challenge. It's an S and T challenge. It's a political diplomatic challenge. Uh, as I said, you know when I was characterizing um, China's strategic objectives under Xi Jinping, it's to maximize. China's wealth and power and influence implicitly relative to that of the United States. Uh, and I think that, the, you know, as a historian, the, the nature and the, the scope of the, of, the, the, of the challenge from China uh, is in some ways unprecedented because the Soviet Union never had the capabilities uh, and the global reach uh, that China does today. Uh, so I, I think the purpose of the intelligence community, I don't remember the details of how they outlined it in the report, uh, again, is to is to uh, is to ascertain the nature of that threat, where it where it presents itself globally, and even within the United States, because uh, including the, the the levers of Chinese power and influence and activities abroad include their intelligence operations uh, in the U.S. Uh, and in all kinds of third countries. There's a you know I would highlight that uh, China is engaged in uh, a contest. With the United States, with the West in large, uh, in general, uh, you know, there is an ideological component to the competition because the Chinese 
see their developmental and economic model and political model uh, as a perfectly viable alternative uh, to ours, uh, particularly, frankly, when ours is faltering and has been showing some of its dysfunction. Uh, so I think, again, the intelligence community's mission uh, is to identify the ways that the Chinese are pursuing this, the avenues through which they're doing it, the levers they're using, where they're operating, uh, and they're operating all over the world, uh, uh, and to provide support, uh, not in terms of formulating policies to respond to, uh, but in terms of assessing the kinds of uh this was an important, I, I'll just mention this here because, uh, you know, as an intelligence analyst, my job was never to advise U.S. policy, to tell them what their options were against other countries. Uh, but one of my jobs was to identify how the Chinese or any other foreign country would respond to various actions by the United States, what they wanted the United States to do, what they expected the United States to do, uh, what they didn't want the United States to do. Uh, the intelligence community's job is to, uh, is to get inside China's head uh, to understand the way it thinks about uh, the challenge it perceives from the United States uh, and how to counter that. Earlier this year, uh, the U.S. Air Force shot down a Chinese high-altitude surveillance balloon over U.S. territorial waters off the coast of South Carolina. Uh, and in recent months, there's been conflicting reports about whether it had actually collected any intelligence during its flight. Um, and it doesn't appear to have sent anything back to China, according to the the, the latest reporting. What do the American and Chinese reactions to this incident indicate about the state of the U.S.-China relationship in your mind? Uh, I actually wrote an article on almost precisely that question. The, uh, I think the balloon episode was a, a kind of a perfect microcosm of, of what I frankly consider the dysfunctionality of, of U.S.-China relations right now. I uh, think that there's an adversarial pathology which I think almost uh, predetermined how we were going to respond to that episode. Uh, you know, there was a, a as you said, uh, and again, it, it's still debatable. And I don't have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not privy to the classified assessments of of, of the nature of the of of the balloon and its uh, and its payload uh, that have been conducted, uh, you know, by the government since it was shot down. Uh, but, but I think there there certainly were indications that it was not wholly intentional, uh, that the thing had drifted off course. There's some debate or uncertainty about whether it was still capable of collecting anything at all. Uh, as you said, there seems to be indications that even if it was, it wasn't able to relay it back to Beijing. Uh, uh, but I, I, I don't think the Chinese uh, genu genuinely believed that they could have sent this thing uh, across the entire, you know, the drift across most of the continental the United States uh, uh, in full public view uh, and get away with it. Uh, so I, I think they're, you know, I, I'm convinced that uh, this was not something the Chinese intended to happen, at least not uh, in its totality. Uh, but, you know, notwithstanding that, there was an immediate inclination on both sides uh, to assume the worst in terms of motivations, uh, you know, uh, it certainly was a violation of U.S. sovereignty. Was it intentional? Uh, was it collecting? And of course, the Chinese uh, condemned the shoot down as a hostile act against a, uh, something that was theirs in sovereignty. Uh, uh, so I think that, you know, there's so much distrust uh, and misunderstanding between the two sides that uh, the episode uh, almost automatically mobilized a confrontational response on both sides. Uh, it led to a blame game, which I think is also continues to be a persistent component of, of U.S.-China relations. Uh, and it, frankly, it came at the expense, quite specifically, uh, of efforts to address this, the, the, the episode and the circumstances through direct engagement, because it led immediately to the cancellation or postponement, I should say, of Tony Blinken's then planned, Secretary of State's then planned visit to Beijing, uh, which it took six months to reschedule. Uh, and, and I think that process is only beginning to unfold incrementally in terms of re-engagement. Uh, so I, I, I think the fact that the, the balloon episode uh, pretty much suspended uh, what had been a dual commitment uh, when President Xi and President Biden met 
in Bali last November uh, to revive engagement, uh, high-level engagement and working-level engagement. Uh, the fact that the balloon episode uh, led to recriminations and postponement of that process for six months, I think, was just a, an unfortunate reflection uh, of the distrust and uh, uh, and knee-jerk reaction that both sides have to each other. And I think we need to we I mean, we simply need to get over uh, get over the hump, if you will, and and and, and try to restore uh, a much more uh, constructive process uh, of engagement, which is aimed at mutual understanding and not just uh, exchanges of lists of grievances. <laughs> For the people who are ideally going to be constructing that better process, <laughs> what advice would you give for young people who are, uh, who, 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 you know, would, would, would appreciate your, your decades of experience in the intelligence community? What advice would you give to people seeking a career in the intelligence community today? Oh my, well, I would certainly highly recommend it. Uh, a career in the IC. It, it's, you know, it was profoundly important in my view and consequential work. Uh, and again, I mean, I worked in, in the analytical uh, side of the intelligence community, but worked closely, obviously, with the operational side, depending on what uh, what your inclinations are or what your skill sets are. Uh, I, it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a more consequential uh, uh, job that was uh, that was more directly involved in uh, you know directly in you infor- informing U.S. policy in very high stakes issues. Uh, I think in terms of advice, uh, I think this would, would apply either to people who are pursuing analytical jobs or operational jobs. I, I think you know based on several of the things that I've already talked about in terms of the U.S.-China contest and the U.S.-Russia contest. Uh, this is not something I would have thought of maybe a couple of years ago, but I think that you, if you're interested in a career in the intelligence community, try to avoid approaching it with an ideological mindset. You can certainly approach it with a patriotic mindset, uh, which we do. Uh, but if you, if you approach it with really frankly, a cold war mindset, uh, it's going to undermine the objectivity and the credibility of your work. I think, um, uh, I would advise uh, students and others who are interested in IC or government careers to focus on developing a broad-based, you know, literate understanding of international affairs. Uh, And especially since I'm a historian, I'll give a plug for that. I mean, I think historical understanding and consciousness is incredibly important uh, to, you know, assessing, both perceiving and assessing uh, uh, diplomatic relations, foreign policy uh, trends. Uh, and you know, I was hired as a generalist, not as a specialist. I didn't know anything about East Asia when I started. Uh, but, uh, so I would focus and again, maybe this is traditional and old school, but I, I, I think I would advise any students to really focus on just developing their critical thinking and analytical, uh, skills, research skills, uh, um, and, you know, kind of predictably the, your uh, ability to express yourself in writing uh, and, and orally. Uh, I think these kind of general analytical uh, and communication skills are 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 fundamental. Uh, and certainly, you know, folks will be pursuing various uh, areas of expertise, or you know, in terms of geographical or or or, uh, or functional areas uh, and language skills in particular. But I think those those, those have to be uh, supplementary to uh, just fundamental um, analytical thinking skills. And, and I think that, I'm, you know, I, that's my prejudice having been an analyst for 30 years. But, but I think that, that the same way of thinking uh, broadly and, and in a sophisticated way and being able to write and talk about it in a sophisticated way uh, applies as well to people on the operational or the policymaking side of the equation. Well, Dr. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I, I just wanted to, is there anything you want to plug, you know, uh, beyond the fact that people should absolutely read Mr. X in the Pacific? Huh. Uh, no, that'll be enough. The uh, It's newly out in paperback. I actually wrote it. It was first published in hardcover five years ago. Uh, this oh. is the, uh, this is just the paperback edition. Uh, but the publisher uh, decided for the same reasons I think you did that there would be interest in it. And so they've made it more accessible and more affordable. So uh, 
I certainly encourage people to read it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Security Dilemma is a podcast for the John Quincy Adams Society. To learn more about our programs, visit our website at jqas.org. Remember to rate and review on your podcast app and join us every Tuesday for new episodes of Security Dilemma.